Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. It is Sunday, October 24th. In exactly two months, Kiwis will have woken on the morning of Christmas Eve. It's almost time for advent calendars, elf on the shelf and pine needles stuck in your vacuum cleaner. Ono te kou mā rua, 62 sleeps until Christmas Day. But if that number stresses you out, we figure these ones might have been worse. 41, 51, 60, 94, 60, 102, 129, 104 new cases, the majority of those in Auckland. And more... Ho, 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 dear. We were supposed to have the long weekend off Q&A, but my colleagues chose to cancel their holiday this week to focus on the holidays in two months' time. Because even though the government plan has no fixed dates for when things will change, looming over everything is Christmas. A time of year that Kiwis usually expect to travel and socialise freely. A critical time of year for the retail and hospitality sectors that are among those hardest hit by COVID-19 restrictions. For today's show, we are just focusing on the two months left this year. Vaccine passports that were ruled out as recently as August, but are now the backbone of the government's future plans. Will schools reopen, businesses, and above all, how do we keep driving up vaccinations? If you want summer, if you want to go to bars and restaurants, get vaccinated. If you want to get a haircut, get vaccinated. If you want to go to a concert or a festival, get vaccinated. If you want to go to a gym or a sports event, get vaccinated. Under the new government framework, all DHBs in New Zealand have to vaccinate 90% of the eligible population before we move into the traffic light system. Northland is among the DHBs with the lowest vaccination rates at the moment. Over the last few weeks, Nationals Deputy Leader and Health Spokesperson Dr Shane Ritti put aside his normal commitments to help administer vaccinations in Northland. I spoke to him a short time ago and asked him to describe his experience. A real privilege to be back at the front line, back on the tools this past couple of weeks, out in the remote and rural areas, working with the professionals at uh, Kia ora Ngāti Wai. Uh, Judith and I decided this was definitely the best place to use my resource uh, at, at this time. And what we've observed being out in those remote and rural areas is that if we deliver care closer to the home and closer to the bedside, make it easier for people to do the right thing, they will come and be vaccinated, firstly. Second thing, uh, what I've been reminded of, is delivery of care in a culturally competent context. Particularly for Māori, they have some hesitancy around institutions. And what they say, because I ask everyone who I vaccinate, what brings you here today? And many say, oh, we want to be vaccinated by someone who looks like us. Uh, we want to be vaccinated by our iwi. And I look back at uh, last weekend, the vaccination Saturday, and uh, we had people who drove 30 to 45 minutes from Matapuri and Nunguru through to Whananaki. They actually drove past other vaccination opportunities to be vaccinated by their iwi. So I think it's a combination of things that is, uh, is working here in Northland. See, that's really interesting. What lessons do you think there are that can be applied for the ongoing vaccination rollout and trying to support those people who are perhaps vaccine hesitant to overcome some of those hesitations? 
several things, make it easier for people, take these services closer to them. We had uh, three or four young men uh, this week uh, who were actually working on a building site close to where the Kia ora service was being offered, and they just came across from the building site and were vaccinated. The reality was they had vaccination options in town, but there are waiting times, there's fuel, and so we made it easy for them. So access, access, access uh, continues to be important. What I also note, and it's not a privilege you often get in general practice, but people want time. They want mm. time to discuss the vaccine, time to do a cost-benefit analysis, and the ability to sit down and calmly work through their fears and hesitations. Uh, every person who we've had that discussion with, where the Kia Nati Wai team have said, oh, Dr Shane, this person would like to speak with you specifically. It's a 15 or 20-minute quiet conversation. Every time we've been successful, but having the time and, and the knowledge to be able to have that conversation also makes a difference. What impact have those recent positive cases in Northland had on the community? Oh, it's had a big impact. Uh, there's real concern here in Northland. We have to imagine that at zero cases, we were at level three no more than a few weeks ago. And here we are with four cases, and we're still floating at level two. Uh, I've spoken with business who would have a direct impact if we were to escalate a level, and they have huge concerns. Another problem's been that from when the cases were announced, we have no locations of interest for Whangarei, even as we speak here today. That's a problem. We need that information. And then secondly, the weather's been very poor. It's been stormy, actually. Mm. It's stormy today. It has for the past few days, and it will be for the next few days. Why that matters is, is because if we're going to get our arms around this, we need to know how broad and deep the outbreak potentially could be. That means people need to be tested, but with weather like this, uh, it's unlikely we're going to get the number numbers we, we really will need. So to be clear, with the information we have available at the moment, should Northland stay at level two or should Northland be moving to level three? What I'm hearing from everyone in the community, certainly from iwi and certainly from business representatives as well, and in general discussions, they're enthusiastic to mm. actually move up a level and keep ourselves safe until we know what the testing environment shows us. OK, that's interesting. The Northland DHB, as it stands, mm. has one of the lowest vaccination rates of all DHBs in New Zealand. Will Northland get above 90% of the eligible population being vaccinated? And if so, when? <laughs> That's going to be a real challenge. And if I could describe that, if we look at the starting point, what we can do is we can look at the number of parents who have declined their children under two to have their vaccines. So in the spectrum of early adopter, hesitant and declined, they've said, do not vaccinate my child, take them off the register. If we use that as a proxy for decisions they might make for themselves, Northland is first equal in the country for declines at about 11%. That already starts to push us to the 90%, and then we add the hesitant on top of that. It's going to be a challenge. Nationwide, will you be comfortable relaxing restrictions if Māori remain 15 or 20 percentage points behind the vaccination rates of the general population? So I'm really enthusiastic that we do not stigmatise Māori. This is not a Māori problem. It's all of our problems and it's all of our responsibility and privilege to fix. And so what we've said is we've said, look, if 80% of a DHB and 70% in each 10-year age group are vaccinated, mm. we could look at relaxing uh, some of the restrictions that we have. But it's really important that we don't marginalise and stigmatise society and start breaking ourselves apart by either blaming Māori or by blaming a region. I think it will be tragic if we look at any particular DHB and say, you're holding us back. I don't think that serves our collective purpose.
So should we not be looking at specifically at those Māori vaccination rates? Yes, we should. We should be watching them so we can understand where the resources need to be applied. We shouldn't take our eye off that ball at all, uh, but that shouldn't be uh, a factor that holds us back. OK, that, see, to unpack that for me a little bit more, because because you know as well as I do that at the moment Māori and their vaccination rates are 15 or 20 percentage mm. points behind the general population, which means that even if we get to high general population vaccination rates, Māori are likely to still be left behind, which means they're likely mm. to have worse impacts once the virus is more widespread in our communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if we look here at Northland, uh, we know that uh, as a whole across Northland, we're about 10% behind the general mm. population, the rest of New Zealand, and Māori are about another 10% behind that. So that 20% delta uh, that you're talking about, about uh, what we need to do here is we need to be applying resources to where the greatest need is, mm. and the greatest need is clearly with Māori. And it's things like we've talked about, uh, getting closer out into the communities, uh, having people of trust around them, developing that culturally competent context, that will be what lifts the Māori vaccination rates. One part of the government's new plan announced on Friday is $60 million in additional funding for Māori service providers to go out and, and make sure Māori are being vaccinated. What sort of difference will that make? Hmm. So if we look at that, we've spent $250 million to date uh, mm. on Māori vaccination. And uh, the questions I'd have to that are, what were our outcome measures? Have we achieved them? And what are the learnings going forward? Um, that, that brings us to the now, which is the $60 million for Māori health providers. That's a good thing. And $60 million for community support. We need to know some of the detail around that community support. But what I'm really interested in, so that'll be almost a third of a billion dollars, is building a vaccination infrastructure for all of the vaccines on the immunisation register. Because we've got that opportunity now. Yes, coronavirus is front of mind. But behind that, very close behind that, is measles. We've delayed the MMA. 15 to 30 catch-up. If we get measles in New Zealand here and now, we're in deep trouble. And remember, it's more infectious than coronavirus. Mm. We've delayed the HPV vaccine to 13-year-olds uh, in schools, and I have a real concern that we're going to get a spike in cervical cancer in about 10 years' time. So let's use a third of a billion dollars to build a vaccination infrastructure through Māoridom that future-proofs other immunisations and the boosters and other, other programmes that we're going to need to roll out. That's what I'm really enthusiastic for that money to be deployed towards. Do you think the government's plan for COVID-19 or Nationals' plan for COVID-19 will ultimately keep Māori safer? I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by our focus on Māoridom and our understanding that we will not stigmatise them and our understanding that in our document and opening up, we haven't... Uh, we haven't specifically set a target for Māori deliberately. Again, we worked mm. on the 80% DHB, 70% per 10-year age group. Uh, we are very committed to Māoridom. Uh, we understand that there are extra hurdles for Māoridom to get over the line, and we will apply ourselves fully to help Māori with that. So, so which plan do you think keeps Māori safer? Uh, look, I believe, of course, that the work we have put into the opening up plan, which we've brought forward, mm. is a really good starting point. Uh, we didn't have the money that they've announced this week. Uh, we don't have the levers, the privilege to have the levers of Treasury. And so the $120 million they've applied this week will be useful. So I would suggest that what we've put out is a really good starting point. Some of the levers of Treasury that government has will add to that. And may maybe together we can get that best mix. Dr Riti, I mean, you're in opposition. You can say that we would dedicate money to this cause and you can pick any cause you like. 
<laughs> we need to be real as well. And when we say uh, we'll deliver a plan, uh, we actually mean that we can deliver a plan. So uh, we wouldn't go beyond what we believe we actually could deliver. That is Nationals Deputy Leader and Health Spokesperson Dr Shane Deaton. Coming up, we'll take a close look at vaccine passports. But next, we are back to school. If only Auckland's kids were safely too. What are the chances that all kids in the 09 will be back in school this year? For years 1 to 10, the picture is a more difficult one. I'm not completely ruling out these students in Level 3 regions being able to return before the end of the school year, but if they do, we'll need to be satisfied that there are sufficient processes in place to be able to minimise any risk. So Cabinet will consider the latest health advice and further decisions on schooling, particularly focused on Years 1 to 10 and Early Childhood, next Tuesday. That's Education Minister Chris Hipkins. Under the government's plan, when we move to the traffic light system, all schools will reopen for in-person learning. But whether that'll happen for younger kids in Tāmaki, Makoto, Auckland before Christmas isn't clear. Liam Rutherford is the president of NZEI, Te Reo Roa. Kia ora. Thanks for being with us, Liam. From the government's plan as it stands, do you, do you think it's realistic to expect Auckland primary schools will return for in-person learning this year? Morning, Jack. Nice to be speaking with you this morning. Look, I guess that's what everybody hopes. Uh, obviously, uh, teachers and educators want to get back face-to-face -face with children as quickly as they can. I think probably the biggest frustration that's out there right now is people aren't sure what the bigger plan is. Uh, the announcement that we heard from government on Friday goes some way to that. Uh, but the big question is people want to know specifically what does that mean for education? Uh, we know principals have got a massive job ahead of them around planning that reopening, uh, but currently we just don't have the information that we need to be able to form that plan. What information do you need? Well, uh, the public health order uh, for the vaccine mandate is going to be a big part of it, uh, but we also need to understand how the announcement on Friday links in with schools reopening, uh, particularly at a time where school communities are still going to be dealing with the COVID outbreak. Uh, they need to know uh, what those types of restrictions are going to look like uh, as we look to reopen schools fully. When do you expect to get that information? Will the announcement this Tuesday coming, will that help? Uh, well, we know that the uh, Tuesday announcement is going to be uh, our next uh, opportunity to understand, but as we've seen before, um, the government isn't afraid uh, to throw the ball uh, another week into the future. And how do teachers feel about that? I mean, certainty is difficult in the, in the Delta age, isn't it? But, but do teachers feel like they have a sufficient framework or a clear enough pathway back to the classroom? I think, like the rest of the country, we're still making sense of exactly what Friday's announcement is. Uh, I'll tell you what, though, teachers cannot wait to get back uh, to uh, teaching and learning with their children face-to-face. -face. Uh, but they want to make sure that it is done safely. Uh, and so Tuesday's announcement um, hopefully will reveal uh, the next layer of information. Uh, and we want to make sure that we've got time to be able to implement that guideline. So is the feedback you've had from your members that Friday's announcement perhaps wasn't as clear as it might have been? I think people knew that that was going to be the announcement for all, uh, for the entire country. Mm. Uh, but the traffic light system clearly points to all education facilities being open. Uh, the gap in information that we have is what does that actually mean? 
Uh, we know that there's going to be different types of restrictions at different levels. Uh, we don't have that information, and so that makes planning harder. This week we're expecting uh, senior students at some Auckland high schools to return for in-person learning in schools, albeit socially distanced, of course. From a safety perspective, how do your members in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, feel about reopening school? I think the strength that uh, I think the strength of the approach the education sector has taken to date is to lean on the advice of public health experts, uh, and so we are really looking forward uh, to the information that comes out from there because we know that they're taking the safety into account. Uh, I don't think anybody wants to rush back uh, to school um, until we do have confidence that it can be done safely. When vaccine mandates were announced for your members, how many members did you lose? Uh, so uh, we don't really talk about those numbers specifically. Uh, it tends to be um, a changing feast. Uh, we do know that the numbers are really low. Uh, overwhelmingly, the education sector has welcomed uh, the vaccine mandate because uh, everybody understands that vaccines are going to play a key role in the country coming out of uh, the COVID lockdowns. Could, could you give us a, just a general sense as to the numbers? Is New Zealand likely to lose dozens of teachers who won't comply with the mandates or are we talking about hundreds potentially? Um, I don't think we're going to know that number until we actually uh, have the have the public health order information. Mm. Uh, what we do have, though, is certainly a group of educators in the country uh, that do want to rightly know uh, what the options are for them. Uh, we know that uh, people are hesitant right now, and the best thing we can do is make sure that we're putting things in place to get good quality information out there. Uh, so at this stage, I think people just want a better understanding of what their options are. But we are talking about a really small number. The overwhelming majority of the sector fully supports the vaccine mandate. Yeah, no, it, it's clear that, that, you know, the vast majority of teachers and your members support the vaccine mandate. They can see that that is the safest way to get kids back in school for in-person learning, particularly kids who can't be vaccinated at this point in the pandemic response. But I'm just trying to get a sense as to the, as to the size of the group of teachers in New Zealand who might be reluctant to go back into a learning environment if they have to get a vaccination. So, so can you just give us a, a, a bit more clarity around that, the size of that group? Well, um, I don't think we actually know what the size of that group is because mm. I think there's going to be a difference between uh, those people that will just outright refuse and those people that will get there once they do get access to that better information. And that is certainly what we are hearing from principals out there. Mm. Um, nobody's talking about people that have already handed in their resignation yet. Uh, what they do want to know, though, is what are the options? Uh, but as we are seeing overseas, vaccine mandates have done a really good job in being able to be that kind of final linchpin and getting people to go and do the right thing and get that mandate done. Are there likely to be certain communities or certain deciles that are more adversely affected by teachers who don't want to comply with the mandate requirements and thus don't continue teaching? Um, I don't think we've got uh, a sense that, it is, uh, that those conversations are isolated to any one particular community. Uh, obviously, one of the concerns that we're going to be looking at really closely is the impact that this could have on staffing shortages. Uh, we know that the early childhood sector themselves, uh, prior to COVID, uh, were having massive staff shortages. And uh, the lockdowns uh, and the current state of the ECE sector have compounded that further. Uh, vaccine mandates look like that will stretch them further. 
Uh, we know likewise um, these, uh, the similar staff shortages are taking place um, in the primary sector. And so this is where we are going to be calling on government to partner with us to make sure that schools and early childhood centres are staffed at a level uh, that is able to meet the needs of children. But, but I, I look forward to that first deadline. It's November 15th that teachers and ECE educators have to have had their first jab by. So that's three weeks from now. How is that going to be checked? And is there likely to be a bit of a pinch point around that date? Yeah, I mean, uh, those answers are going to lie in the, uh, in the public health order that we still don't have. Uh, and, it is that and it is that lack of information that is causing frustration out there in the sector. Uh, people do want to understand, particularly principles ar around what's required of them on the 15th of November uh, if they don't have that information through yet. Is there a concern that, that there could be a group of teachers who in the next three weeks aren't prepared to comply with the vaccine mandate and that come November 15th there might all of a sudden be a bit of a shock across the board where ECE educators and, and primary school teachers aren't able to be in schools? I mean, that question just speaks to the vacuum of information that we have uh, because the government also has the option uh, through to put testing regimes in place through until that uh, second dose uh, mm. that's required at the 1st of January next year. And so uh, currently we're dealing in a lot of hypotheticals and I think that is where the frustration from the sector is coming. Uh, they've been told the headline announcement around vaccine mandates, uh, but actually that next layer of information that actually allows people to plan and offer certainty just isn't there. All right, Liam. Thank you so much, especially for getting up early on your long weekend when you're on holiday with the Farno. That is Liam Rutherford, the president of NZEI Te Reo Roa. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, vaccine passports will soon be a part of everyday life. But are they ethical? If you've done the right thing to keep yourself and others safe, to look after one another, you should feel safe. You should be protected from those who haven't made that choice. That was Jacinda Ardern discussing vaccination certificates, which will soon be a big part of our lives. As recently as August, the Prime Minister ruled out using vaccination certificates, despite versions being in widespread use overseas. Now, vaccine certificates will make up the backbone of the traffic light system. Associate Professor Angela Ballantyne is a bioethicist on the government's Immunisation Implementation Advisory Group and she is with us this morning from Wellington. Tēnā From an ethical perspective, what do you think of the government's plans for vaccination certificates? Kia ora and good morning. Um, I'm really pleased you chose to share that particular quote from the Prime Minister because I think that highlights some of my concerns. The most important part of our response to COVID and one of the reasons that it's been so successful in New Zealand has been um, the focus on collective interests, unity, kotahitanga and really working as one. And so I think a major risk with the vaccine certificates or passports is that they are divisive. And so I think that quote from the Prime Minister really started to highlight that narrative around there are the people that have made the right decision and then there are the others and we need to be protected from them. So now that we're in a place where um, you know, that rhetoric really labels some New Zealanders as threats to other New Zealanders, I think that's problematic. And that's a real departure, I think, from what we've seen from the government so far. I think Ashley Bloomfield's been fantastic in continually reminding everybody um, that the threat is the virus, it's not people. So we, you know, at all costs, want to avoid um, stigmatising, 
uh, certain sectors of New Zealand, pushing them further to the margins and labelling them as a threat uh, to mm. the rest of us. So vaccine certificates are, are in widespread use overseas. Do they make sense from an epidemiological perspective as we respond to the virus? Yeah, so they are in place overseas, that's a good point. Um, I think one thing I'd love to see from the government is a clearer ethical justification for the use of um, the certificates, because there's a few options. You could justify them on public health grounds, um, but under those circumstances you need uh, some evidence that they're going to be effective and to what extent they're actually going to reduce transmission. So some of the principles of public health ethics that would be relevant here are the idea of least infringement um, or proportionality. So the, when you're going to restrict individuals' liberty by saying they can't access uh, certain community and social spaces, that needs to be justified uh, to the extent to which um, the benefits outweigh the risks and also that it's the least uh, restrictive measure possible to achieve your goal. So I haven't seen specific uh, modelling, for example, that compares the ongoing use of masks versus a uh, vaccine certificate. Um, alternatively, a second ethical framework is a sort of moral rights framework, uh, which is what the, some of those comments from the Prime Minister seem to be hinting at, that if you've made a wrong choice or you've done something wrong, you no longer uh, have the liberty and the freedom to have certain privileges. I think that's really problematic and we should avoid that. Um, the third possibility is a utilitarian framework. So sometimes under utilitarianism, we would say that the end can justify the means. Hmm. But it's really important then that we know what the end is uh, and what the goal that we're walk working towards is. So it's not clear to me whether this is primarily designed to be a um, a carrot that gets us up to 90% um, or a stick after we get to 90% to encourage those who remain unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And then I'd like to know what the goal point is, what we're aiming for. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about that second concern you just outlined, the one you said was problematic? Because <laughs> there will be people who say, if you're not prepared to contribute to the greater good of a society by getting vaccinated, which helps to protect all of the other people in society, then you shouldn't get to benefit from all of the privileges of being a part of that society. Yes, um, so people will certainly say that. Um, and I think there's a degree of frustration um, uh, in New Zealand at the moment that leads you know, people to that kind of conclusion. So a few things to consider there. Obviously, um, if someone breaks the law, uh, in some cases we remove their right to uh, free participation in society and we might imprison them. Um, I think it's a really big step, though, to say that because you've chosen not to take a voluntary uh, health service, you've refused a health service, mm. that you no longer are able to participate in some elements of society. And I suppose prior to the announcement, um, I was expecting maybe the certificates would be used for large events, um, concerts, you know, events over a thousand people. Uh, and I can see that there's more justification there. And this is the idea of kind of least infringement. Mm. Um, but if they're going to be used in gyms, uh, cafes and so on, then, you know, I think it's just a big shift for us to say that participating in that community and social life is now a privilege that the government gets to allocate to people um, as opposed to an entitlement that we have as part of our civil liberties. And so again, maybe that's justified, um, but part of the obligation of the government is to do that justification. Mm. And so I felt like we haven't heard that yet. Obviously the Prime Minister had a lot to cover um, in her talk, but I hope that justification's coming. And I think New Zealand's entitled to it. Let me flip the argument on its head for a moment. Um, what are the ethical implications of deciding not to get a vaccine and potentially 
putting other members of your society at risk? Sure. So I think we need to think about the reasons people haven't got vaccinated. And there is certainly um, a group of people who have had access to good information and have made that choice. And that is a choice that impacts their own health, but impacts other people's health as well. But we do know from the data that a lot of people that haven't got vaccinated um, you know, there are various reasons for that. So some people have, you know, complex daily lives. Finding the time to get to the vaccination uh, centre is difficult. People are concerned about side effects. Um, I was in bed sick for two days after my second dose. Uh, people in, in those circumstances might need care and support themselves. They might need care for their children. They need to know they can take that time off work. Um, and we certainly know, for example, that there's uh, specific communities where we have lower vaccination rates. Um, Māori, for example, there's good reasons for distrust in the medical system um, based on a history of colonialism and ongoing institutional racism. Um, so we really need to kind of address those base concerns. I think another group that we're starting um, to see recognition for, which is really important, is low vaccination rates amongst those who use mental, uh, and mental health and addiction services. That's obviously a vulnerable community um, who may have distrust in the system as well. Farnell that have um, insecure housing. So it's just really problematic, I think, if we simplify the narrative and say it's just a choice and people have just chosen not to help their community. Um, and that very narrative risks further stigmatising and marginalising communities that are actually vulnerable. And we need those communities to engage with the system as much as possible. Right? We need them to get tested. If they get COVID or get sick, we need them to come to health services. Um, so I think we have to be really careful about the rhetoric and the narrative we're using, even if we decide um, that some form of vaccine passport is necessary. Yeah, so, so to be clear, you still think that at some point we have to relax some of the restrictions and potentially consider using a vaccine passport, but it's really around the messaging and, the, and as you put it, the narrative as we use those, those tools or make those decisions. Yeah, there's a few other things I'd like to see as well, and this comes down to the justification, right? So mm. if we're clear on the ethical justification, we can put the appropriate evaluation mechanisms in place to see if we're reaching that target. Mm. Um, if the target is to protect the health system, we need to be tracking how many staff are leaving the health system versus getting vaccinated. I really would like to see a sunset clause in there and periodic evaluation of the um, vaccine passports uh, and certificates to see when they we might be able to remove them. Mm. Israel, for example, introduced them in February and then removed them um, in June, uh, and that was set up in advance. That sunset clause was built into the process. Um, I think we would want to think about France's model, where they don't just require vaccination. People also have the option of having been tested negative within the last 72 hours. That's, again, less restrictive than just relying on vaccination. Um, so there's a few things uh, we could that I'd like to see built yeah. in as we move forward. Were you and other members of the Immunisation Implementation Advisory Group consulted about the certificates plan or the government's plans on Friday? Uh, we were consulted about um, the use of vaccine certificates internationally. We didn't have a substantive dialogue about the use of domestic certificates. Um, broadly, I think that is frustrating. I mean, Israel introduced these in February. It was obvious that this is going to be part of the um, potential toolkit. Um, for the Prime Minister to say in August this isn't on the cards and then to announce that it is the primary backbone um, of the strategy moving forward doesn't facilitate public discourse and dialogue. Mm. And I think um, a real strength of the New Zealand system is those really strong, robust, deliberative processes. 
and that encourages public trust, right? So New Zealand has very low corruption rates, high transparency, high expectations of openness in government, and that all is part of the social fabric that allows us to trust one another and to trust the government and to move forward as one. Um, so I really would have liked to see the government facilitate more dialogue um, about this. Mm. And, and we can and do that moving forward. And would you have expected yeah. to be consulted? Uh, well, in the end, these are cabinet decisions. You know, cabinet has the mm. political mandate uh, to make these decisions. Um, we would certainly have liked, I would have liked to have been uh, consulted mm. um, more about it. Um, but I suppose my concern is not so much the consultation, but the public dialogue, right? So the public really needs to be brought along. And I think previously the Prime Minister's done a great job, in, you know, when coercive measures are necessary, of explaining that there are a balance of interests, there are different considerations, yeah. and why certain approaches are necessary. Yeah, and so it's, um, it's not so much about me not being consulted, it's more about ensuring that the public understands and can see a clear justification for why these measures are necessary. This is such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for your time. And before we let you go, te kino o te atahu o te waiata. You are a star for um, bringing your own theme music this morning and, <laughs> and being interviewed seamlessly right throughout. Beautiful Wellington. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank That's you so much. Associate Professor Angela Ballantyne from Otago University. After the break, what do businesses need now in order to crush it over Christmas? Plus, food banks are always swamped at this time of year, but lockdowns have led to a consequence you might not have considered. Hōki mai we welcome back to Q&A. As well as the traffic light plan, on Friday the government announced a new business support package with a boost to the resurgent support payment and $60 million for business advice and mental health support. Is it enough to help businesses make it through to Christmas? Rebecca Stevenson is the head of news for Business Desk and she's with us this morning. Tēnā thank you for being with us. What difference will the government support package make? Well, there was definitely relief from businesses with this extra money coming through, but almost immediately we were hearing from those most impacted sectors like hospitality, like retail, yes, this is great, but we really need more. And there's just that increasing chorus really around the targeted support. You know, we know that those sectors are particularly hurting, um, you know, especially in Auckland. So retail, hospital, tourism, still desperate for more to try and get through this um, increase incredibly difficult period with just really low cash flow coming in. Um, all their costs are still flowing out. Um, so yeah, people were really pleased, happy to see some acknowledgement um, that business in Auckland needs more support, but those sectors are still really calling for more. And what might additional support from this point look like? Yeah, they just really want something that's, I guess, just for them, really, um, to try and tide them through. You know, a lot of them do have fixed costs that they haven't been able to ameliorate by now. You know, everybody has sort of cut where they can. Um, they've been trying to cut their cloth to fit what's happening. Um, but I think we saw a bit of a, a leap in business activity in Auckland when we first came into Level 3. But everything I'm hearing anecdotally from business owners is that has really flattened out. So while we did have that sort of pent-up demand and everybody rushed to support the local cafe. Um, people are still staying home. There is concern about Delta. Um, so I think for Auckland in particular, um, that sort of good vibe that they had is, is disappearing really quickly. What's the flow on effect for the rest of the country? Well, I mean, it, it can be quite huge and we're entering what I'm terming now the danger zone because so many businesses really do rely on that consumer um, demand through Christmas and through this 
upcoming period where we expect people to spend, spend, spend. And if businesses are not able to cash in in that Christmas period, it could get really difficult for them. Um, the BNZ economist Stephen Topless was warning this week that if they don't get that opportunity to get that big increase in money coming in through this period, he's expecting that a lot of them are not going to make it through. And we will start to see more business failures, he thinks, early in the new year. Um, one of the things that I think is different that was from the lockdown last year is that many business owners have tapped their reserves out now. You know, I've spoken to people that have sold their homes and pumped that money into their businesses. They've tapped out their own personal reserves. Um, <laughs> it's going to be someone saying, hey, I can see you on TV at the moment. <laughs> someone who wants to play Minecraft, actually, with my trap children. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, they've, they've tapped their money. They've depleted their personal reserves. So you can only do that once. You can't sell your house twice. You can't tip it, dip into your own savings. Um, so I think that's where we're really starting to hit this wall now for those business owners. They've really leap, limped on almost as long as they can. Um, so, yeah, really difficult and what do business owners think of the traffic light plan obviously oh. <laughs> no, yeah. it's fine it's fine <laughs> honestly take, take a minute it's probably saying hey why don't you pick up why don't you pick up please um yeah so so what you what are what are what do businesses think of the traffic light plan obviously we need to get dhbs to 90 percent vaccination rates for the eligible population before we can move um, into the into the traffic light plan there is a chance that auckland would move there sooner but keep the borders in place how is business going to be able to function once that framework comes into effect? I think it was nice to see our target, but then there was almost immediately this kind of um, dawning realisation that we're not going to get back to what we got to last year. You know, mm. we managed to eliminate and then get back to normal. And there was this fabulous rush of goodwill and excitement as everybody went out and sort of spent like mad and did all these things. And I think, you know, that was a real counterbalance to that traffic light system announcement was the realization that we're not gonna get back to normal and there's always going to be these different levels of restrictions and so um, what can potentially happen from that is that uncertainty is it breeds concern you know both for business owners and for consumers so business owners will be feeling possibly more pessimistic now realizing that okay we're, we're not going to eliminate and we're not also going to get to a system where people could be going to moving around more normally mm. spending more normally and acting more normally. Um, so it's the uncertainty that's going to sort of, I think, cause a bit more fear and feeling that that target's actually quite far away mm. because it's the last people to get their first jab that are actually going to be uh, effectively setting the deadline of when we're going to get to 90%. So it's seeing that that's actually weeks away, probably that's more weeks eating into that really fabulous time where normally they're cashing in and doing really well. Mm. Um, so good to see some certainty and to see some targets, you know, that's really welcome. But also I think this dawning realization that Delta has changed the game um, irretrievably for mm. some time. How do you think businesses will approach vaccine passports? It's going to be really interesting. You know, we've been pushing really hard to try and get more data out of the Ministry of Health and more information because, again, businesses want to know. They need to know how this is going to work. Um, we just don't know enough, I don't think, about the vaccine certificates yet. I'd love to know who's building it. You know, we'd love to know what it's going to look like, um, how it's going to work, so then businesses can start figuring out how they're going to use them, if they're going to use mm. them, or um, and, and enforce them in those 
those kinds of things. You know, we're seeing really difficult scenes in other countries where businesses are being asked to enforce um, some of these rules, you know, difficult confrontations and things with customers and consumers. So I would like to see really just more information from the ministry to be rolled out. Tell us who's building it, you know, let us talk about it. And at the moment, we really have an information vacuum about the certificates. We know there's going to be two. We know there's going to be one for international travel and one for domestic travel, which they've told us is because um, they want to hold less data on the domestic certificates, um, which I guess I can understand. But it does seem possibly silly to be building a new one um, when then people are going to need another one. Um, so really, I'd just like them to give us a bit more info because all businesses want to be able to get back to normal. And the sooner we know what this thing is going to be like, you know, they can plan for that. All right. Thank you so much for your time. That is Rebecca Stevenson, who is the head of news at Business Desk. There is another unforeseen consequence of the COVID-19 restrictions. As it stands, 31 of the Salvation Army's Goodwill stores are closed and unable to take in money that would normally be used to fund social services. And of course, that is adding to the usual pressure that comes with the lead up to Christmas. Jerry Walker is the Chief Secretary for the Sallies and is with us from Poor Nikki this morning. Tina Jerry, Jerry, thank you for being with us this morning. Your family stores are closed under Morning, Level 3 and Level 4, so what impact is that having on your income? It certainly has had an, uh, an effect in the last quarter. Uh, in the nine weeks that the family stores have been closed, uh, we've lost about $2.2 million in, in revenue. That is substantial. Are donations making up for the shortfall? Yes, we're very appreciative of the donations from the general public also our corporate partners, and also we have uh, contracted services, so we work with the likes of the DHBs, Ministry of Health and MSD as well. We uh, predicted that uh, COVID would have a long tail, um, so when we, when we went into COVID last year, we did a lot of pre-planning and uh, forecasting, and uh, through some prudent management, we've been able to uh, uh, enable us to continue to provide services to people in the community. But obviously this time of year traditionally puts a lot of pressure on the services that the Salvation Army provides. If those goodwill stores remain closed, is that likely to increase the pressure in the next two months? Yes, it will, definitely. And, it, and it's more than the, the money that we receive through the family stores. Uh, the family stores are a destination for people. Mm. Um, we have people who come in two or three times a week into our stores. Um, so they've lost the connection. Um, it just reinforces isolation for people. Also for our staff and our volunteers, whom we rely on so heavily to serve the community, it's hard on them as well. How have lockdowns in Auckland and, of course, in Waikato and Northland as well affected the need that you are seeing in the community? It, it certainly has. And, and, of course, it's on top of previous lockdowns, particularly for Auckland. And uh, this time round, um, it's, 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 it's manifesting itself in the likes of mental health, anxiety, loneliness, uh, depression. Uh, also coming up to Christmas, as you said, um, additional costs with the thinking around, OK, gifts for Christmas and wanting to have presents for children. Also, just the fact that kids have been home for all these weeks um, puts added pressure on families for childcare. They may not be able to depend on extended whānau family who can come in and provide childcare because of lockdown provisions. Has there been an impact on family violence as well? 
Yeah, so there's, there's evidence to show that uh, family violence has increased. Um, what we're doing is we're endeavouring as we journey with people to connect with them as often as we can. Now we have to do that differently, perhaps over the phone. Um, mm -hmm. If it's face to face, we're, we're outside, uh, you know, obviously social distancing is in play. Um, but a lot of our people don't have internet, they don't have the devices to connect with. So we're looking at doing as much as we can uh, to support people over, these, over this period of time. On Friday, the government announced a $9.6 million extension to, uh, to the, oh, for hardship assistance to support people on low incomes. What difference do you think that will make as the lockdown continues in Auckland? It certainly will help, Jack. I think what people are looking for is hope and they're looking for some certainty and assurance of that we will get through this. Uh, no one can really predict when that will happen. But uh, really right now um, they're looking for some kind of, of surety and certainty mm -hmm. and support. And so what was announced on Friday is, is, is added support and that's greatly appreciated. Uh, the likes of the Salvation Army, we will continue to support people as we have done across Aotearoa for the last 138 years. And over the next two months, in the lead up to Christmas Day, what is the most important thing, do you think, to support people in hardship in the build up to Christmas? For us, it's uh, staying connected to people. As I said, a lot of people are isolated, uh, feeling um, stressed, they're lonely. Uh, we will continue to engage with them as much as we possibly can, provide whatever support, whether it's financial mentoring, food, uh, Christmas presents for, for children. Uh, we will continue to do that. Um, we may be in lockdown in Auckland, but the Salvation Army isn't locked down. All right. That's good to hear. Thank you so much for your time. That's Colonel Jerry Walker from the Salvation Army. After the break on Q&A, New South Wales and Victoria had Delta outbreaks which kicked off just before New Zealand. Now they're celebrating freedom. What lessons can Australia give us for flattening the curve here before Christmas? Welcome back to Q&A. Victoria celebrated Freedom Day on Friday following in the epidemiological or public health management footsteps of neighbouring New South Wales and ACT. This is how Delta case numbers have tracked in Australia over the last few months. Cases in New South Wales started rising in late June. A few dozen daily cases quickly became a few hundred. On September 3rd, daily cases in the state peaked at more than 1,500. But almost as quickly as case numbers grew, they've dropped off. There's been a steady decline in New South Wales, so that at the beginning of this week, new cases were in the low 200s. In Victoria, the surge in cases started about a month after New South Wales. Numbers followed a very similar trajectory, rising up to more than 2,200 a day. The speed of the growth in cases does appear to have slowed, but it's not yet clear where the numbers have peaked. So, what can New Zealand glean from the last few months of the Australian response? Professor Mary-Louise McClaws from the University of New South Wales is with us this morning. Kia ora, welcome to Q&A. Looking at the Australian experience and how things stand in New Zealand at the moment, what should we expect here? Good morning. Uh, look, I think you should expect that unless your 90% is equitable, that is regionally, culturally, and by age, that what you will see are clusters of infection. And they won't just be mild, like we've seen in Singapore, where they opened up 
they had about you know in the 70 percent um vaccine coverage uh but they've gone from about 180 infections in that first week you know to over 3,000, about 3,900 only a few days ago but most of those were mild infections about oh gosh 90 odd percent mm. are mild but in regional australia they may not be mild because they haven't had equity of access and so you want to learn from our mistakes and just looking at who drives uh inadvertently of course not deliberately um infection in um new zealand you know the zero to 20 uh, 39 year olds are 72 percent of all cases so the young ones need to have vaccine equity uh and it's really really important and at the moment that 20 to 39 year olds at only 55 have been fully vaccinated. Mm. And the Maori group, you know, only 47% have been. Uh, the Pacificas, only 61%. And, you know, of course, you know, the remote regional areas around uh, New Zealand, it may take at least 50 to 60 minutes to get to a vaccine hub. So what you should learn from Singapore and from um, particularly Victoria coming up and, and our regional areas, is if you don't want to see infections that won't be mild necessarily in a naive group that haven't been vaccinated or, and that haven't had any mm. natural infection um, antibodies, you really do need to take the vaccine to the people, to the remote areas. Is there reason for hope in the New South Wales response? We saw those numbers surge and then drop off. They've plateaued somewhat. Will that trend continue? That trend will continue, I believe. Um, but what they, what the authorities did uh, quite sensibly is walk back a decision to open up to regional areas when they realised that us in the city could inadvertently take infection to somewhere like Hunter, New England, that was struggling with some infection rates mm. and the highest in the regional areas. Or our Indigenous First Nations uh, population out in the West weren't well covered. Some were brilliantly covered and some weren't. So they walked back that decision and we are not allowed to go yet to some regional areas and quite rightly so. So you should learn from our original mistake that we could have made it worse, but fortunately uh, we haven't seen that yet. And what do you think of the New Zealand government's plan? Look, I think the 90% um, idea should be congratulated. Uh, you know, New Zealand is very conservative around how to handle uh, COVID, quite rightly. But what I'd like to see is uh, you to learn from not just Australia, but from overseas, nearly every country fails to understand who the drivers are. And, you know, they go for the compassionate rollout for vaccines to the elderly. Absolutely. And the elderly in New Zealand have very little attack rate within their age group, um, but they certainly get hospitalised a lot. Uh, but what you do need to do is focus on the young and mm. get them vaccinated, regardless of their culture and regardless of where they live. Make sure the young get vaccinated so you will stop the drive yeah. and make sure particularly that 20 to 39 do get to 90 as well. And and one other thing, if I, if you wouldn't mind me suggesting, is that the school children are doing well but are not 
vaccinated highly enough yet at about 49% double vaccinated uh, and only about 29% having their first one. Fantastic. You know, they're close to 80%, but why not wait for them to go back to school uh, for when they're at 90%? Mm. And that way you buffer the young who can't get vaccinated yet. That's interesting because senior students in Auckland where most of New Zealand's, uh, most of New Zealand's infections are occurring, uh, return to school for in-person learning this week. Is that a mistake, do you think? Uh, look, I understand that um, authorities and parents want their kids back to school because they see the difference. You know, the socialising is important. However, mm. so is their health. And while they mainly get mild infection, about 2% of children can go to hospital. And so, you know, 2% as the numbers just increase in children is a large number eventually. So why not protect them? And also when kids are sick and they stay away from school, they often feel bad about themselves that they can't keep up with their schoolwork. So keep them at home until they're 90% and then you've got a very safe childhood. In Auckland, we're in a curious position of having vaccination rates relatively high compared to the most of uh, most of New Zealand, but we also have higher infection rates as well. Would it be reasonable to ease some of those border restrictions around Auckland once we get vaccination coverage of 90% for the eligible population? Mm-hmm. Look, it seems reasonable, doesn't it? But what happens if you open up um, that sort of uh, ring fencing of Auckland and allow people to go outside of Auckland to areas where they aren't well vaccinated? Now, you could do that if you really had a system that could police it. And, uh, and so that they could ensure that those that leave are double vaccinated mm. and they have a certificate. And that needs to be checked because you don't want to put people in regional areas, particularly remote um, uh, you know, communities that haven't had enough vaccine at great risk because while double vaccination keeps us from dying, from being hospitalized, it doesn't always keep us from being uh, you know, um, uninfected and having silent infection and then taking it to remote areas. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. We really appreciate it. That's Professor Mary Louise McClaws. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your messages. A massive mihi to my Q&A colleagues who cancelled their holiday plans at short notice in order to do the show today. Hopefully they'll get a holiday two months from now. We are back next week. Hey, te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.